Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Choose Yourself Network. Today on the James Altucher Show... I don't want to suggest, I don't want to imply that I understand someone's situation unless I've been there myself. A. B. I don't want to give advice that I haven't implemented myself. And the suicide chapter goes hand in hand with a few others. And even in the introduction, I say, a few of these chapters are going to make you think, and this is very deliberate, wow, holy shit, I had no idea Tim Ferriss was such a mess. How does he get anything done? And that's by design. Uh, were, you, were you scared of that? Because again, everybody is a mess. But I think there is a mythology that you're like kind of this mini superhero <laughs> that, and, and all your shit is together as opposed to 99.999% of the rest of society. And so was it a little scary to kind of let people in and see this side of yourself? It was in the beginning, for sure. And that was until I realized what you just said. Everybody is imperfect at best. And I think that it's been very reassuring for me in interacting with these people that I put on a pedestal and maybe to some extent still do. I mean, these are icons, right? In many cases, the best at what they do to realize everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. I mean, there's... And that I find not depressing at all. I find that extremely encouraging and uplifting because... These people we tend to think of as superhuman who grace the magazine covers and are smiles on TV, they succeed despite their flaws. And there are specifics. Almost all these people have their specific recipes that they use. Take it away, sir. Tim Ferriss, thank, you were one of my first podcast guests, actually, and now you're the latest podcast guest, and we're, we're talking about your book, Tools of Titans, which I've already told you before the podcast began. This is one of the most amazing books I've ever read, and I'm not just saying it. Welcome to the show once again. Thank you, sir. It's great and, to be on. And Tim, a lot of the, um, in Tools of the Titans, you, you, well, first off, I remember a few months after I started my podcast, you wrote me and said, hey, can I call you for a second? called me and you asked me like 50 questions about podcasting and then like a week later you you were now I'm starting a podcast so was I did I help at all in you starting a podcast oh yeah for sure absolutely okay I mean, good uh, definitely one of the inspirations and in seeing how your experience with the written word translated over to audio 100% and you know I've noticed for myself 
that over the past three years since I've started, I've just gotten so much more. I've had, I'm having so much more fun with podcasting. I feel like I've gotten more skills at interviewing. Do you feel the same for you? You've been doing it just as long. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah, it's it's been a real study for me, and fun to dig into the art of asking questions and also yeah. listening for that matter. I remember early on. Oh, I'm bad at that. See how I just interrupted you. <laughs> Well, you know, sometimes you got to wedge in, sometimes you got to ease off. And what I learned, for instance, from Cal Fussman, who's incredible, he wrote the What I Learned column for Esquire for decades, or one of the primary writers. And he listened to one of my interviews and he said, let the silence do the work. Because he noticed that I would ask a question and if someone seemed stumped, I would try to jump in, say 30 seconds later, to give them a lifeline. He's like, no, no, no. Try not to do that. Let the silence do the work. And I was like, ooh, that's a good one. So not only asking questions, but also learning the timing of it and follow-ups, quite frankly, getting better at follow-up questions and digging and the simple follow-ups that do a lot. Like, how did that feel? What did you learn from that? You can tag those two on just about anything. What do you mean? You mean they're telling a story and then you ask, how did that feel? Exactly. So what's an example where you use that? Uh, I've used it when someone tells me about when they when someone is inclined to gloss over something maybe they don't view as important, such as, well, I came home from my job and I talked to my wife about starting the company, and then off to the races we went. And I'm like, hold on, okay, <laughs> like first, there's got to be more to it than that. You have a stable job, and then you go do this super speculative thing. What was the conversation? Like, walk me through the conversation. So the the ability to steer away from binary questions, like, did that feel good? Not an ideal question, but instead saying, and this is something I learned from Alex Bloomberg, for instance, who is one of the co-founders of, of sure. Gimlin Media, asking them- Been to- on my podcast as well. Yeah, he's fantastic. So walk me through you know, from A to B. Like, What was that conversation like? What did it feel like having that conversation? When you knew you were going to broach the subject with your wife, how did you feel? And then after the conversation, how did you feel? It's, it's such a layup of a follow as far as questions go, but you can get some incredible stuff from it. I, I find people aren't necessarily the best curators of the events in their life. Mm-hmm. They can say, oh yeah, uh, and then, so I was married for five years and then I got a divorce and then I got this new job. Whoa, 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 why did you get a divorce? Like, so, yeah. It's such a traumatic event in someone's life. There's always a story they don't have to tell you, but it's worth asking because it's the only time you're ever going to have in your life to ask them that question. Well, totally. Or I was at a dinner last night, a really fun group of folks. With who? Uh, well, we had uh, Jocko Willink, so Navy SEAL commander, former Navy SEAL commander. We had Sam Harris, PhD in neuroscience. Love him. The, <laughs> the brilliant guy. Uh, we had uh, Amelia Boone, three-time world champion, toughest mutter. Uh, Sam's wife, who is equally brilliant, and Echo Charles, who was with Jocko, and then I'm going to, it was my first time meeting him, but Elgin, I think it was James, and I may be making up that last name, Jocko could correct me, but he is now a filmmaker and has done really well at Sundance and is a writer, but he had an extensive gang history and was a gang leader, traveled around the country and went to prison for a period of time and I don't understand. Do gang leaders travel around the country being gang leaders? Well, exactly. So this is part of what he explained to us. And uh, he's mixed race. So he was traveling around the country, effectively hitting, hunting skinheads and neo-Nazis with his colleagues. 
<laughs> and hitting them with the hammers or, or, or fill in the blank weapon. And uh, he was explaining, for instance, the racial tribal rules within the state prison that he went to. And then he's like, yeah, but this stuff isn't interesting. And then moved on to somebody else and everyone's like, hold on a second. <laughs> this stuff is interesting. And I think that part of the reason we're so bad oftentimes at curating our own experiences is that we undervalue them or what's we we can't predict what other people would find interesting because they are uh, key ingredients to our life that maybe we encounter on a daily or weekly or monthly basis. So they cease to be novel to us and it requires someone else to use questions as the pickaxes to remove those experiences and present them. Well, and I think that segues into this book, Tools of Titans. You basically interviewed hundreds of amazingly successful people who achieved peak performance in their lives. And I sort of see this book as not um, necessarily an advice book, although it's there's so many great um, examples from what these people say that that's great advice for anyone's life. But it's it's your exploration of how you could achieve peak performance. And and I think that's what made it what makes it so interesting is you asking all of these people how they did what they did so you could potentially do them. Right, exactly. And not only taking the advice and trying to absorb the advice, but bridging the gap between passive reading and then implementation of that advice, right? And so, so what I mean by that is, I'll give you an example. We were just talking before we started recording about Derek Sivers, one of our you know, one of mutually favorite people, or one of my favorite people, and if it's not uh, a hell yeah, say no. Yeah, exactly. And he has another one where he said, you know, if 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 more information were the answer, we'd all be billionaires with six pack abs. It's like the information is there. Uh, it's the question of why we don't execute on what we know we should do. You know, and Sam Harris, who I just mentioned, uh, and I'm paraphrasing here, but he said that on some level, wisdom is the ability to take your own advice. So. With the bits and pieces in this book, and each it's kind of a choose your own adventure guide to like the habits of peak performers, right? I've applied all of it, so I tested all of it. And the way I feel about it is, if I can test it for myself, and then perhaps have friends replicate the results, whether it's a device like the Chili Pad, which is kind of an awesome gadget that was recommended by a number of people, or intermittent fasting, or some weird chemical cocktail. Whatever it might be, if it works for me, at least I know it's been it's been replicated now two times by the guest and now by myself. And then if I can test it with a few friends, then it applies to a much larger group and it goes in the book. Well, I think that's an interesting point because I feel like with a lot of personal development books, it's all like this scientific study shows this, this scientific study shows this, as opposed to I think in a lot of your books, but in particular in this one, it's your experience. Mm-hmm. So your experience did this and you got better this way. Mm-hmm. So it might not apply to everyone, but you know, depending on how general the, the advice is, it could apply to everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think that's often the best advice when you've actually done it and seen the results as opposed to 60% experience willpower depletion by 5 p.m. in the afternoon. We don't right. know what to do with that. Yeah, I agree. And also the way that I think about, say, putting together... This was a very meta book for me because there, there are a number of writers in the book. So I was implementing their advice as I was writing the book that contained their advice, which was kind of a trip. But 
when I thought about writing each of these small profiles, and I'd say about 50% of the book is all new material. I mean, it's, it's new advice from past guests or new quote unquote guests who actually have not been on the show uh, and independent chapters for myself. When I was putting it together, my goal wasn't to have, and I think this is a, a fatal flaw for a lot of personal development books or materials for that matter, is I, I didn't want everyone to like the book. And let me explain what I mean by that. I want maybe 10% of the people reading this book to love each chapter. So then if we look at it that way, I want to have mm. a diehard fan group. 10% of the people reading love a given chapter. Now I have whatever Love one chapter? Yeah, but then you have 50 or 60 chapters. So let's just right. say it's... So they're going to love, let's just say hypothetically, absolutely love like, oh my God, I have to tell all my friends, 25% of the book. And then maybe they like, who knows, another 25, 30% of the book, and the rest they don't care about. And that's totally fine. So I, I view this, the four-hour body was the same way as a buffet of options that you can dip in and dip out of and, and collect, in this case, sort of a, a customized bespoke toolkit of habits and tools that you want to test. But if, if every single person who bought this book skipped half of it, I'd be thrilled. Well, I mean, again, you even say this is book. You don't have to read it in order. You can um, you can jump you know, around. skip around, but you'll see. I mean, I have the book right in front of me. I took, I have a piece of paper sticking out of every page that had kind of wisdom that I want to apply in my life, mm -hmm. and it's like covering the entire book. I don't even, I can't even ask you about everything in this book, or we're going to be here for six hours because it's incredible. All the things I want to try, but that leads to the question. So, first off, you have some amazing guests in here. Um, or amazing people you, you write about. Some of them have been on my podcast. We have a little bit of an overlap. Some of them I could just just die to have on my podcast. Like you had Seth Rogen and Evan Goldberg. You had um, you know Kevin Costner. You have Stephen Dubner. You have John Favreau. You, you, you have Glenn Beck, um, Scott Adams. I could just go on. I'm Mark Andreessen. I could go it's, on and on. Reed Hoffman, yeah. Josh Waitzkin. Josh Waitzkin, I've asked. We're both chess players, okay? We've met before. He, I don't know. I think he even lives around the corner from me. I've asked him a million times to be on my podcast. Never even responds. He's been on your podcast twice. He doesn't do any media uh, except for my except for my podcast. And Josh is awesome. I love Josh for so many reasons. Uh, for those who don't know, he's, so he's the inspiration for searching for Bobby searching Fisher. Searching for Bobby Fisher. He's considered a chess prodigy. He has mastered many different areas, not just chess. He's the first black belt in jiu-jitsu under Marcelo Garcia, who's considered probably the best grappler of the last 100 years, which means of all time, given the evolution of the sport. And uh, so he's so refined and so well-spoken and such a genius, but he has died in the wool New York also. So every time he's on my show and he gets some kind of uh, wave of interest or whatever, he'll send me texts. He's like, you fucking fuck. You fucking fuck. I come on your show and this is what happens. So I just love that he, he, can, he can have both of those elements of his personality. But yeah, he, he just doesn't do any media. Rick Rubin is another one. Uh, uh, another genius. Everybody in your book, yeah. by the way, is a genius. So Rick Rubin, I mean, describe him. That guy is a super genius. He is. Rick Rubin is, is maybe, if not the most successful, one of the top three most successful music producers in the last hundred years. I mean, you go down the list and it's just Johnny Cash, Linkin Park. Uh, Adele. Adele. Yeah, exactly. 
uh, Justin Bieber, Lady Gaga, Kanye West, Jay-Z. I mean, it's everybody that you've, that you've heard of just about. And uh, I, have, I have a fascinating story about Adele and Rick Rubin, by the way. But Rick, is, uh, he has a huge beard. He's lost 100 plus pounds in the last decade, which is very impressive. That's a story in and of itself. And we become friends. We met through uh, Neil Strauss, who's had eight New York Times bestsellers. And, and Rick plays a prominent role in Neil's book, The Truth. He does. He does indeed. He really gives a lot of advice to Neil. He definitely does. And Rick said, I'm happy to do your podcast, but we have to do it in my sauna. <laughs> if we're going to do it, my condition is we do it in my barrel sauna. So that was a whole adventure unto itself. Okay, uh, I was wondering about that. Were you guys both naked in the sauna? No, we had bathing suits on. There's a barrel sauna, and the specs for that barrel sauna are actually in the book. It's the same barrel sauna that Laird Hamilton, king of the big wave surfers, has used and does use. So we get into this barrel sauna. It looks like a wine cask on its side. We have bathing suits on. Out Just outside of the sauna is a gigantic ice bath. So it has probably 60 pounds of ice in it, as well as a few other things. And we would sit in the sauna until our brains were scrambled eggs and then do ice bath and then go back into the sauna and rinse and repeat. How cold was the ice bath? Oh, the ice bath, if I had to guess, and I'm pretty good at this because I do a lot of ice baths, I would say the ice bath was low 40s, which is really cold. I would oh my God, I tried... 53 degrees, and yeah. I can't do it. Yeah, I would guess this ice bath was probably 42, 43. Very Doesn't your body cool. go into a shock at some point? Uh, if you stay long enough, certainly you could go into, into uh, what is hypothermia. But we were so hot and then also went straight back into the sauna that it, it worked out really well. You do feel extra dimensional. <laughs> like would you After- say that podcast was had a different feel to it than other podcasts you've done in terms of like when you listen to it later? Uh, it, well, it did when I listened to it later, and it did while I was recording it. And uh, Rick made the point that after four or five cycles of the heat and the ice bath, the sauna is truth serum. And so he he wanted to do it in that environment. And I did so much research on gear. I pulled my fans on Twitter and Facebook to try to figure out how I could have my my electronics not malfunction. The one thing that I forgot was how hot these mics, the mics could stand the heat. I just forgot how hot they would get. So these these mics that we're holding right now were like a, a hot pan on a stove. They were so hot. So we had to take towels and wrap them around and hold onto the mics with these towels. It was an adventure. It was a big adventure. Well, you know, so so... I sort of feel like this podcast is going to take three parts. One is kind of a, a little bit more of this kind of general the experience of meeting all these people and you know learning from them and your process of learning. Then some of the things that I noticed that kept coming up over and over again, including maybe some things I noticed that you might have left out that you could that you could have put in. And then I want to get just open to random pages where I have these notes and just see what comes out of that. Sure. So so again, you have um all these amazing guests on, and you're you're really I I sort of see this this is like an adventure in self discovery as well like like you said with the Rick Rubin podcast this was an adventure it seems like many of your guests you interviewing them was an adventure for you like what an exciting thing to meet all of these people what a wide variety of people like was there any guest that was particularly hard to get or you had to like I don't know fly to the North Pole to, to interview them. <laughs> There were there were a bunch of guests who took a really long time to get on, uh, meaning a year, year and a half, 
two years in some cases. I would I would add, let's see, who would be on that list? Jamie Foxx would be one who took a long time. Great interview. Totally worth it. And uh, he's he's just- I learned a lot about him from yeah, that podcast. He's a fantastic guy. I mean, really great human being. Uh, and when the cameras are off, when the recording's off, uh, which I've noticed with a lot of the people who ended up in this book, and maybe that's just <sighs> selection bias because I'm perhaps looking for those people. Arnold Schwarzenegger took a long time and also totally worth it. I mean, it's surreal for me that he wrote the forward of this book. That just makes my mind oh, yeah. blow, blows that. my mind as someone who's raised by raised on Commando and Predator on Long Island. It's just hard to believe. And uh, I'm trying to think of who else was hard to get. I mean, you have so many people who I'm just a big fan of, and who we again we have some overlap, like. Cheryl Strait, I just love as a writer, and you know maybe not as widely known as some of your other guests. Yeah. You know, B.J. Novak, who of course is a great actor on The mm-hmm. Office, but his uh, book of short, short stories—I don't know if you had a chance yeah. to, to to really get into it—but uh, he's a great writer. I mean, he's, he's just a very talented writer. guy, and he has a lot of advice. So this book is is broken into healthy, wealthy, and wise. And I—that's a nod to Ben Franklin, but the. The guests are slotted according to the advice that I selected, not based on what you might associate them with. So for instance, Naval Ravikant, who is a name not many people would recognize off the bat. He's not Maybe a, the smartest human being I know. Yeah, just incredibly brilliant. Brother also brilliant. And Naval is in the wise section, even though in Silicon Valley he's known as an investor because the advice that I selected is primarily what I would consider good life advice for just psychological and emotional well-being more than just amassing uh, capital. And so there are, there are sort of a few categories of guests that I tend to pursue. You have the big names who are multifaceted. I love Hook and the Marlins, right? I mean, those are the big fish, the people everyone will know. So finding something that they have not discussed is very fun. Like Arnold Schwarzenegger in his year of doing transcendental meditation, for instance, having a permanent impact on his ability to separate out problems and not view overall stress as one gigantic amorphous issue to tackle. I mean, that was a very fascinating conversation for me and not something he talked about. But 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 also, but that idea that uh, meditation is something that affected Schwarzenegger's life. This kind of concept of sideways or lateral thinking mm-hmm. comes up a lot with these guests. That all the time. That that the thing you like. It's one thing if he just talks about the process of making a movie or being governor. That's almost a little boring because he's done that interview a million times. But to see that oh, there's something in here that comes from meditation and that's fueled his life. That's a fascinating story. It is, and then it's something you can immediately practice yourself if you want to, and also the backstory. I think it's uh, the, one of the unifying characteristics of almost everyone in this book is that they were dismissed or ridiculed or felt handicapped by flaws or weaknesses that later out they were able to turn into strengths. But I would say everybody in the world has flaws and failures and it's these people grappling with that vulnerability and figuring out how to learn from it and change from it mm-hmm. that really define them as opposed to kind of relegating them to mediocrity. Oh, totally. And I wanted to ask you specifically about that. I feel like in this book as opposed to other books and I've seen I've seen this evolution in you over the past like let's even call it like 3 or 4 years. 
you've been depressed and and you've been stressed and you've been anxious and you know in the four-hour work week you kind of allude to that like oh i'm working too many hours i'm getting stressed about that but here you really in this book you're really kind of grappling with issues of depression and suicide and 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 you're being really honest and what what kind of led to this evolution both in your writing and your thinking to really kind of head on not only grapple with this vulnerability but admit it and talk about it yeah that's a great question i so depression is uh it's a member of my family in a way so on uh on i think on at least one probably both sides of my family you see extended depression as as a characteristic and how much of that is nature versus nurture is up for debate but there seems to be a hardwiring component regardless that is part of my life that i have learned to and continue to learn how to navigate in the past even in the four-hour work week uh, i talked about the hard times uh, but there were but the hard times just related to work basically yeah and and, and, and self-doubt and other things but there were certain certain shadows or certain demons that I fought that I didn't feel would be of service to talk about. And that in fact, if I if I let the genie out of the bottle with some of these really scary stories, these these extremely dark periods, that I would not only damage myself, but in some fashion cause damage to my family maybe cause guilt on the part of my mom and dad, etc. So I kept it inside. And as the years went on, I saw friends of mine, in the case of, say, suicide, very, in some cases, very successful, in other cases, not. Friends of mine take their own lives. I had fans. Uh, it's just a, a matter of numbers, right? If you have millions of fans or blog readers, looking at the national or global averages, I mean, you're going to have suicides. And some of them were very concrete. I mean, these were horrible experiences. And I had, in the case of suicide, there was one particular incident that led me to write about it. And that was, I met a, a fan at an event. So Jason Calcanis, who does This Week in Startups, Twist, did a live event in San Francisco and I hung out for a little bit afterwards. People wanted books signed, things like that. And this gent, I'll call him Silas, came up, stood very politely, waited his turn, asked me to sign the book for his younger brother. I said, sure, no problem. What should I write? And he, 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 fl- he flinched. There was a flutter in the eyes. There was just something off. He, he didn't respond to it normally. And he didn't have an answer. So I jumped in. With, with sort of a, 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 a life raft. And I said, hey, man, I can come up with something. You want me to come up with something for him? And he's like, sure, sure, no problem. So I did that. And then I went on and continued talking to other people. And as I was leaving, because I had to pick up, uh, at the time, my girlfriend at the airport, he came up to me at the elevators, just as I was about to get in. And I said, okay, cool, walk with me. And he's like, can I talk for a second? Sure, just walk with me. And he explained that his brother at 22 had recently killed himself. And that he he his brother had listened to me, Joe Rogan, a few of other podcasts, a few other podcasts, and had kept him going for longer than uh, otherwise they would have expected, basically. And he asked me, "Have you ever thought about talking about depression or suicide? I feel like you have such a microphone, such an audience. Maybe you could save somebody." And 
uh, I was speechless because unbeknownst to him, some of my closest friends in high school had killed themselves unexpectedly. I mean, oftentimes it's like the star, the super handsome dude with the rich family, doesn't matter. I mean, people from all walks of life had some of my best friends. Uh, I mean, on the other side of the tracks, I had a uh, friend, I have an overdose, that's a separate story. But then college, same story. Some of my closest friends ended up killing themselves. And in college, you talk about your I, own I wrestling almost, with it. I almost offed myself. You, you basically said you had made the decision and began the research. Yeah, I was in full-on planning mode. And then just by stroke of luck, I mean, one in a million, Long story short, I had I had requested I had taken a year away from school and requested a book on suicide from Princeton's library, Firestone, and I'd forgotten that I hadn't updated my address on file to be my off-campus address. So the postcard saying, "Hey, your book on suicide just arrived. Come to come for pickup anytime." Went to my parents at my home uh. address on Long Island, and my mom got it, and she called me, and that was the kind of cold water in the face that snapped me out of my delusion which was this is this is about me well and and you even like in this book there are a couple of chapters that don't aren't really about other people but are more much more first person and you have kind of a a guide to not committing suicide and one of the one of the first things you say is uh basically the ramifications on the people who who love you you know mm-hmm. and you have to take that into account yeah, if if you were to magnify your pain by 10x and inflict it upon the people you care about most, that's that's suicide in a nutshell. And there, there's much more to it, of course. Uh, but that I think is the most that the chapter on suicide I think is the most important thing I've ever written. And Be- because it's because it's not just like you shouldn't do this because you know a lot of personal development is written in the second person. You should or you could right. or this is what how many pull-ups you could do mm-hmm. um but but it's rare and maybe maybe it's becoming more common but i feel it's relatively rare to write personal development in the first person and this is the book where you're you're largely doing that even with mm-hmm. the other people you're in you yourself are a character you're in the first person mm-hmm. and i think that's really important it is i don't want to suggest I don't want to imply that I understand someone's situation unless I've been there myself. A. B, I don't want to give advice that I haven't implemented myself. And the the suicide chapter goes hand in hand with a few others. And even in the introduction, I say, a few of these chapters are going to make you think, and this is very deliberate, wow, holy shit, I had no idea Tim Ferriss was such a mess. How does he get anything done? And that's by design. Uh, were, you, were you scared of that? Because again, everybody is a mess. Okay, yeah. but but I think people do think. I think there is a mythology of Tim Ferriss since the Four Hour Workweek, and then um, peaking. I think with the Four Hour Body, that you're like kind of this mini superhero, <laughs> that and and all your shit is together, as opposed to ninety nine point nine 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 percent of the rest of society. And so, was it a little scary to kind of um, let people in and see this side of yourself? It was in the beginning, mm-hmm. for sure. And that was until I realized what you just said. Everybody is imperfect at best. And I think that it's been very reassuring for me in interacting with these people that I put on a pedestal, and maybe to some extent still do. I mean, these are icons, right? In many cases, the best at what they do, to realize everyone is fighting a battle you know nothing about. I mean, there's. Right. 
And that I find not depressing at all. I find that extremely encouraging and uplifting because these people we tend to think of as superhuman, who grace the magazine covers and are smiles on TV, they succeed despite their flaws. They figure out coping mechanisms and they, figure, they learn how to leverage their strengths. Maybe it's just one or two things. And they're able to produce these outsized returns and create change in the world. And I think that's super reassuring. So when you ask someone very directly, and I, I like to ask this a lot, well, you know, what are some of your darkest periods? And then how did you find your way out of that? What were the factors that led to you recovering from that? What do you do now to fend that off? What do you do now if you start to go into a funk? And there are specifics. Almost all these people have their specific recipes that they use. Yeah, it seemed like 100% talk about their flaws and their failures. And it's not even kind of in this failure pornography in the sense that I had to fail before <laughs> I succeeded. Like right, they really are just right. documenting, like I failed, but then I learned this and applied exactly. it the next time. But what was maybe the person who surprised you the most who still gets into a, a funk and what, what they do to come out of it? Let me think about that. Uh, the first one that comes to mind is Rain Wilson, actor. Mm. Uh, so from the office, just for cor- people who don't know, cor- correct. And what, what Dwight, what, Dwight, and what what he said, there were many components to this. Uh, the first was learning that being himself was less work, and it sounds so self evident, but in entertainment, it's not obvious because in this town, and we're sitting in L.A. right now, the vast majority of people who are trying to audition for roles or find their place in the world of entertainment are looking for what's hot and what other people want. And very early on, Rain had some terrible experiences, which I think were in fact in New York, and decided that he would be himself and succeed or fail being himself. And that led to a lot of success for him after the fact. But the, the, the line that really stuck with me that again, I found so reassuring because he's he's masterful in his craft. I've seen him do live performances that are one-man shows that are just mind-boggling. And he said, there's certain things I need to do just to get to normal. <laughs> he said, I'm not talking about getting to like the pinnacle of high-performance achievement in my daily routine. Just for me to get to normal, I need to do certain things like exercise or meditation and or say some form of tennis or acting to get out of his own head. And that is an ongoing maintenance project. So so it's interesting. There's almost a contradiction because there's being yourself, but there's getting out of your head, coming from the same person. Yeah. So it's almost like people don't realize a technique for authenticity doesn't necessarily mean identifying with this constant stream of thoughts running through our head, but kind of stepping away from that and seeing what's left. Not trying to define it, but just seeing what's left. Definitely. And I, I think by, by being himself, what he meant was embracing his eccentricities and his weirdness and using that as an asset as opposed to trying to bury those or cover them up to try to be uh, a character actor for something that he is not. And then there's just the day-to-day, how do I maximize my emotional well-being or at least ensure that I'm not in a downward spiral? 
and he has his coping mechanisms for that. Uh, one thing, I'll give you another one that really surprised me, and this popped up more than once, and I think it's worth noting that I didn't plan on making this into a book. This was me setting aside a month where I took my parents, my mom had never been to Paris, my dad hadn't been in since the 60s, to Paris for me to sit down and digest all of the lessons from podcast guests into my own notebook, just for my use. Just for your, your use? Just for me. And uh, <laughs> and then I was like, okay, I can't keep this to myself. So it turned into what's sitting in front of us. But the one of the habits that I noticed in interviews that were maybe a year and a half apart were from Ed Cook, who's an incredible memory athlete and coach. Wait, was Josh Forrest uh, coach in Moonlighting with Einstein? Yeah, Moonwalking with Einstein. So he took a journalist from zero to national memory champion in a year. Just an incredible mental athlete and performer. Uh, now has a startup called Memorize. So in his episode, and then also in BJ Miller's episode, which is one of my favorites, BJ Miller is a palliative care physician. He works in hospice care. He's helped more than a thousand people die. And that young guy, he was electrocuted in an accident in college and lost three limbs, burned off. And they both do the same thing. And here's what it is. I started calling it just for myself because I was recommending it to some of my friends who are prone to depression or anxiety. It was star therapy. <laughs> so what the hell is star therapy? Well, what BJ will do is he'll look into the sky at night and look at the stars to put his own issues in perspective. And he'll observe that the light that's hitting his eye from a given star might be thousands of years old. The star might not even exist anymore. And he runs himself through a set of observations about the cosmos and the enormity of not, not only sort of uh, spatially, but temporally what, what we are. And that is, you know, as Naval would say, just the, the blinking, the single blink of a firefly in the grand timeline. And it is incredibly calming. It's incredibly calming. And it puts all of your trivial nonsense that you're getting wound up about in perspective. Do you think... And Ed does the same thing. He does I, exactly the same thing, but he thinks about it. He just imagines zooming in from outer space hmm. towards the globe or towards Earth, then the country where he happens to sit, then down to this pitiful little creature thinking he's a loser because he lost a debate competition or something. So it's a, it's a practice though. You have to always... Like when you're down and things seem really against you, it's a practice to remember, okay, I need to now do this exercise. Well, I think that you can use it prophylactically. Mm-hmm. I think you can use it as like a, a depression condom uh, in the sense that... I've never heard those two <laughs> words put together, but depression well, and condom. Well, I'd, I'd never heard uh, failure pornography, which I like quite a lot. So in the sense that you dig your wells before you're dry. So don't wait to be depressed and then try to dig your way out of it. Uh, and this is something I picked up from a lot of people, which is have a daily practice that helps to keep that darkness at bay, or at least under control. So for me, while I was writing this book, I was out on Long Island and I did this every single night. I would, I would lay on my back and look up at the stars and do this. And it was in, I found it incredibly therapeutic. And what's a um, side note about the writing of this book, this is, and I mentioned this before, but this is the first book that I enjoyed writing. Writing, I find torturous. I find it incredibly difficult. And while I was writing this book, <laughs> And there are a few things I've learned in the process of, of doing multiple books now. 
One is it's good for me to be around people. If, if I'm by myself, the likelihood of going red rum, red rum, kind of Looney Tunes is high and that's not good for anybody. So in, in the case of Tools of Titans, I flew a researcher out from where he was, Montreal, to New York to be with me 24-7. He had, he had a guest room and to work alongside me. Even though we could have done it remotely, I had him there for psychological well-being. And uh, we met at some point. We had a, we had a great routine. We had, we had a number of routines, almost all of which came from the book. And we, we bumped into each other at the refrigerator one morning. And he said to me, how are you so calm? And I asked him what he meant because it was out of left field. He goes, well, you got a million things flying around. This book's going bonkers. I mean, this, the, it, it's a huge project. There's so many people involved. The car just broke down. Your dog just got injured. My dog had lacerated her foot really badly. You have family visiting. You've got people coming in and out. How are you so calm? And I thought about it. And he was right. I was really calm compared to my previous books where I've been a tightly wound, quick to anger, pain in the ass for everyone, including myself. Really unpleasant to be around. And I thought about it and it was because in the process of reviewing all of these chapters and profiles dozens of times, I had started to adopt hmm. a lot of the behaviors and the routines, like the star therapy, which I would do after a sauna, which <laughs> I would do exactly as Rick Rubin did. Uh, and in the mornings, I would use something called a rumble roller, which is this odd foam roller type device that Amelia Boone introduced me to and on and on and on. So it was a it was a microcosm of what we were putting together. Let's stop to take a quick break. We'll be right back. Yes, it's totally true. Airbnb has changed my life. If anything, they have made my life so much better. Like I used to live in Airbnbs. I, I lived in over a hundred or two hundred different Airbnbs over a three-year period, and I loved it. I love. I became a really good guest of Airbnbs, and I got to know lots of hosts. So when I initially owned a house, I of course the first thing I thought was I'm going to turn my house into an Airbnb because I travel a lot. So why leave my house unused when I can make a side income? by letting others Airbnb my house or come to stay in my house as guests. And having my own Airbnb or, or being a host for Airbnb has allowed me to do just that. And I've met other hosts. I've actually spoken at Airbnb's host conference. I think it was in 2017. I met so many just nice hosts. It's a great community. And I love you know turning my own home into an Airbnb. Like I'm traveling to Austin next month. My home's going to be an Airbnb while I'm away and I'll stay in an Airbnb. I'd rather stay in like a three-story house Airbnb than in one tiny hotel room in, in the middle of Austin during South by Southwest. So listen, while you're away, your home could be an Airbnb. Many people host on Airbnb, but there are people who are just letting their house sit empty who've never thought about it or didn't realize their space could be an Airbnb. Hosting can easily fit into your lifestyle and is a great way to earn some extra money. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, then you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. 
Daylight savings time is starting up again. Okay, podcast is over. That's all you needed to know. But why do we have uh, daylight savings time? Answer, to give us more daylight from March through November. By setting your clocks forward, it may feel like there are more hours in the day that initial, when we initially start daylight savings. But if you're hiring, it doesn't necessarily help you find qualified candidates for your roles any sooner. There's only one way to do that, ZipRecruiter. And right now you can try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter works around the clock to find qualified candidates for you. Once you post your job on ZipRecruiter, they send it to 100-plus job sites so you reach more of the right people. This is such a brilliant idea for a business, and ZipRecruiter did it. So ZipRecruiter's smart technology also quickly scans thousands of resumes to identify people whose skills and experience match your job. I've used ZipRecruiter particularly as a potential employee, and I still, to this day, get messages every day. James Aldacher, would you like to apply to be... VP of entertainment at NBC or whatever. So there's just nonstop emails. Like I got five or six emails today because of because a year ago I signed up for ZipRecruiter. So spring forward with a new hiring partner, ZipRecruiter, and find top talent sooner. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to this exclusive web address to try ZipRecruiter for free. ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Once again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Hey, listen, men's health is important. Men act all cocky and like they don't need anything. But the reality is, as you get older, there's some things you need. And it often feels like we're too busy to take care of our health problems. Like, I'd rather do anything then go to the doctor or the dentist or the pharmacy or whatever. But now you don't have to waste your time if you use HIMS. HIMS, H-I-M-S, HIMS is changing men's healthcare by providing simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for erectile dysfunction, hair loss, weight loss, and more. The entire process is 100% online, so you get a new routine of improving your overall health faster. Jay, you listening to all this? Yes, I definitely gotta use him for now. Not on. that you need it. You're you're young and healthy, James. I'm 35. You, you're getting there. You might you might need it. Who knows? But if prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and indiscreet packaging. No insurance is needed. You can manage your plan on the Hims app, track progress, and learn more about your conditions and how to treat them from leading medical experts. Start your free online visit today at Hims dot com slash James. Could you imagine that there's a whole section just with my name on it? Hims.com slash James. That's how I how much I am representative of the kind of person who needs hymns. That's HIMS.com slash James for your personalized treatment options. Hims.com slash James. Prescriptions require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash James for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. I wrote down um, a list of like maybe 20 things that are mentioned over and over again by the different guests in the book. And one of them, let me see if I could just find it on 
yeah, we are small in the universe. It's basically that star, because uh, many of your guests mentioned that exact same thing as a, as a technique they use. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask you about some of these other ones sure. as well. But but one thing you didn't mention, which I can easily see in the book, um, you know, there's that saying, it's almost a cliche now, you're the average of the five people around you. Mm-hmm. Clearly you put a lot of successful people around you and the podcast is almost an, an excuse to get them around you. Like, it, sure. like you even mentioned, you know, you, you have a chapter on podcasting and why people should do it. But p- one of the reasons to do it is you get all, to talk to all these interesting people who fascinate you. Why do you think, I don't really see a lot of them talking about how part of their success was being, you know, the average of the five people around them. It's, uh, it's, it's not something that's come up explicitly in, it's not something that's come up explicitly in that many interviews. I think if you were to ask them point blank, that at least those in the group who are self-aware, which I think is most, quite frankly, because I've selected them to be on the show and done my homework, would agree with that. The forward by Schwarzenegger, I think, is very, will be very surprising for people because it's, I am not a self-made man. It's entirely about how, although people view him as self-made, he always dodges that and and refutes it because of how he stood on the shoulder of giants and and had people help him along the way. So it is it is a I think it is a common thread. It's just not one that's that's covered explicitly. The way I, I, I think that's my fault also because I just assume it to be the case. But, so. but you know, you cover it implicitly by you know so many of these guests know each other. Yeah, for and sure. And so even though you don't explicitly say, okay, I'm this person is successful because he hung out with this person, you have everybody saying when I was talking to X Y Z, and X Y Z happens to be another guest on your show, mm-hmm. so you're able to kind of weave it all in. And uh, it's interesting because, again, I've seen the same thing. Many of your guests are my guests, and it feels like, or have been my guests, and it feels like it's one big scene that's trying to figure out all these fields of like art, creativity, writing, physical health, uh, entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. and so on. And, and I can see also in the book, you focus obviously more on your interests, there's a lot more on health and physical, um, you know, physical peak performance. And so what were the main things do you think you learned? I mean, this is, you know, like you said, it's healthy, wealthy, and wise. Health was the first chapter, and you focused so much on it with the four-hour body, four-hour chef. What would you say were things that were astonishingly new to you in this process that that you actually do now to increase your health? There are are quite a few. Uh, I would say the first is a focus on mobility and ensuring that I have proper range of motion in certain movements that I didn't know were as important as they are. So I'll give you, I'll give you an yeah. example. You're, you're anticipating all my interruptions before <laughs> I do them. <laughs> Very good. So uh, Christopher Summer is an incredible trainer, incredible guy also, former national team men's gymnastics coach. And he has, for the last number of years, he, he kept all of his notes on what worked, what didn't, with his elite athletes and has developed curricula for normals, right? Like muggles, non, non-gymnasts, non competing gymnasts. And there are a few things that have had a huge impact on me. So one would be, if you can imagine sitting on the floor with your legs out in front of you and your arms straight behind your back, kind of leaning back on your palms. 
and then you walk your fingers a little further back. So you're stretching your shoulders and your biceps. That's shoulder extension. So improving my shoulder extension is one thing that's had a huge impact on my general well-being and, Why? and back health. Well, it's it's something that is it's compensating for a lot of bad behavior and chronic postural issues, like sitting at a computer that uh, most people are susceptible to. Oh, now you're making me feel like I got to let <laughs> Sit up straight, down to nabby. And another would be thoracic spine mobility. So upper spine mobility as opposed to lower back. So many people, they sit down a lot, they get tight uh, iliopsoas, so tight hip flexors, which connect to the lower back. They get lower back pain and they start to walk in a, or stand in a very sway back position, which... I have have avoided largely, but my upper spine, I realized by doing a particular type of bridging that uh, that has diagrams in the first section and Coach Summer comes up very early, I, my upper spine was frozen. I mean, it was, it was literally like a rod of steel. It had mm. no articulation. And by doing a few things, using the rumble roller, for instance, uh, and doing a number of things very simply, for a few minutes in the morning, I'm not talking about an extra half hour. We're talking about two to four minutes, maybe, of very, very uh, basic stretches for thoracic spine, like I mentioned, and then the shoulder extension. Those are two examples. A host of issues, probably, I don't know, let's just call it six to 12 different issues I'd had for more than a decade. What's an example of issue? Uh, I, I, would, I, I constantly fidget and I'll move my shoulders to the sides like this to crack mm-hmm. my middle back. Uh, and that completely alleviated itself. Sleep issues where I would wake up with an extremely stiff neck disappeared. And this is after two weeks or so of doing just a few minutes in the morning. Uh, and uh, so the return on investment there was huge. Uh, the And then we could go to diet, certainly. But fasting and and, uh, ketogenesis or the ketogenic diet uh, have been two other force multipliers that have affected many different areas of my life. It's interesting because you start to allude to that, of course, in the four-hour body with the slow-carb diet, Mm -hmm. which is kind of bridging on that. Exactly. But... uh, but you know, I've heard you talk offline and also in your in your podcast how important. So a ketogenic diet, just to summarize, is like essentially zero to no carbs, very little carbs. That's right. Your body adapts to using fat as fuel. And doesn't the brain need some carbs to to work? Like, what what's the negative effect of being in a c- completely ketogenic diet? Uh, brain doesn't need it. So there's no such thing as a, as an essential carbohydrate. The brain functions extremely well on ketones, as does the heart. Among so, others. So, so by a ketone, you mean essentially when you starve the body, uh, the, the body of all uh, carbs, uh, it develops ketones that start fueling things. You start to break down body fat and it's converted into what are called ketone bodies. And your body, your brain, for instance, can utilize that instead of ATP. instead of, Or I should say, Rather, instead of glucose, that's a better way to put it. And you even make the statement in the book, or or one of your one of your guests makes the statement: um, if they came down with a cancer, other than the ones that he and he lists them, the ones that are easily treated by mm-hmm. uh, basic chemotherapy. If you come down with other cancers, essentially the first thing this guy would do 
uh, would go into a um, food fast and then go into a ketogenic diet completely. Right, and it's not it's not a, a standalone piece, right? And this is this is where people get themselves into trouble. It's not intended to replace other cancer therapies, but it is a foundation upon which you can make those therapies more effective. And I'll give you a concrete example of this. Uh, a friend of mine, I'm not going to name, but he he was diagnosed with uh, significantly advanced cancer, and he started to go into chemotherapy and, and radiation treatment and so on. And he would fast for three days before his treatments because there, there, there are data to suggest that this sensitizes cancer cells to the treatments while protecting, increasing the resilience of normal cells. The rest of his cohort, the people who were doing this at the same time and he'd become friends with them, they were laid out for a day or two. They had to lay on the couch. They felt sick. They couldn't do anything. He went for 10-mile runs the next morning after mm-hmm. having these treatments and felt fantastic and then went into, into remission. So the, the ketogenic diet, I mean, many of the diseases that we have are in part at least, you know, cardiovascular disease, diabetes, et cetera, uh, even neurodegenerative disease, Alzheimer's and so on, are in part diseases of affluence, right? Just like gout was a disease of affluence because of increased, well, depends on who you ask, but let's just, some people think it's increased carbohydrate and fructose intake, not necessarily uh, purines. Well, on that point of being a disease of affluence, it was great how you pointed out, if you hit the age of 40, just from statistics, okay, chances are you're gonna die of one of four things, uh, essentially either a heart attack, a stroke, Cancer or like a Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's or some neurodegenerative disease. Right. So, so, and this was, uh, it was in the same chapter with the diet that basically this avoids mm-hmm. a lot of those issues. It helps to, uh, at least there, the, there's some literature to suggest that it should. And from just a, a personal empirical standpoint, the, I'd experiment, I've experimented with the ketogenic diet for a very long time. So since about 1998, 99 was when I first started experimenting with it. And it's, it's, people can check out the Charlie Foundation, which showcases one of the original uses of the ketogenic diet, at least when it involves heavy cream, for instance, which was for epileptic children who, were, who had treatment-resistant epilepsy, where they might have hundreds of seizures a day, and you put them on a strict ketogenic diet, and it just vanishes for a very high percentage of the subjects. Now... I was using it for athletic purposes back in the day. And I was doing something called the cyclical ketogenic diet, which is a very big pain in the ass to do properly. When I started it again, it was, beca- it was, a, it was a Hail Mary last ditch effort to help uh, address my symptoms of Lyme disease. So I had Lyme disease, Lyme's disease, depending on how you say it, named after Lyme, Connecticut. It's tick-borne disease, typically. Most people misdiagnose themselves with having Lyme, but I was bitten by six ticks. This is just what happens on Long Island. Do you of, have the bullet, the, the target? So this is a key point. Uh, as a local, everyone in my family's had Lyme. And the assumption, which was a bad assumption, was that if I didn't have the bullseye rash, I didn't have Lyme. So my symptoms continued to worsen. Turns out about 20% of people don't get that rash, so I didn't. Mm. And worsen, worsen, worsen until I was slurring my speech I was slow when I talked. I couldn't remember certain friends' names. I effectively had dementia. It was terrifying. The, the scariest medical experience I've had for sure. And uh, my joints were so sore that it took me five minutes to get out of bed in the morning. And my assistant 
said to me, I've seen you sick. I've seen you tired. Like I've seen you with the flu. I've seen you tired. I've seen you this. I've seen you that. This is different. You need to go see a doctor. And lo and behold, I was diagnosed, but I was operating at, let's call it 10% capacity for nine months. I mean, I got, I, I mean, everything fell apart. And did you get depressed then? Oh, absolutely. Of course. Or I shouldn't say of course, but for me, yes, of course. <laughs> it, was a, it was a very difficult period and I thought it was never going to be fixed. I did the proper cycle of antibiotics, which I think is important. Um, there's a lot, uh, there are a lot of people out there who are listening to this. There are a lot of charlatans out there related to Lyme. There are a lot of dangerous, ill-advised treatments that have no scientific evidence to support them. And it's very unfortunate that that's the case. But Lyme is a very challenging disease to contend with because of the misinformation out there. Regardless, the point I was going to make is that I was always tired. I was always, 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 always tired. And so I, I, I just started asking myself and other friends, what could be the plausible mechanism for this? Because there were days or weeks when I wasn't depressed and I was so, still fatigued. I just could barely drag my ass out of bed. So tired. What could be an explanation? Well, maybe Lyme disease has an effect on mitochondria. Maybe they have an effect on glucose metabolism. Okay. And I started digging into it and revisiting some of the things I'd done before. I was like, all right, ketogenic diet. Maybe that's a way to sidestep. Maybe that's a way to provide an alternative fuel source. And I fasted, which is a whole separate topic for purging precancerous cells and so on. Fasting is very, very interesting. Or even a fast mimicking diet, but I prefer straight fasting. And the intermittent fasting idea is also interesting, but, but go ahead. It's interesting. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. It's more as a lifestyle thing than as a cure. Exactly. We can talk about, I mean, I have a very particular schedule for fasting that I use now for a bunch of reasons. But I fasted, I got into ketosis with the help of some of the doctors who are in this book. I mean, they were giving me guidelines for doing this properly. I got into ketosis and I was able to measure that using a device called the Precision Extra Device, XTRA. It's made by Abbott Labs. And you, you use a drop of blood, take a finger prick and you look at your millimolar concentration of ketones. And once I got to 1.5 millimolars, which isn't deep ketosis, but let's say three days into it, definitely feeling ketones, I was a different person. Black and white, I was my old self. It was crazy. I mean, I, I, I literally one day wake up, I'm my, old, I'm my old self. Symptoms gone. And ketones also have a profound anti-inflammatory effect. So my joint pain started to drop dramatically. And uh, I, I still to this day don't have a perfectly defensible explanation for why that's the case. But I can tell you, and yes, I know that the plural of anecdote isn't data, as a lot of scientists would say. But uh, <laughs> nonetheless, that can inform the formation of hypotheses that should be tested. So I have recommended the, the ketogenic diet to a number of close friends who have come to me for advice, who are genuinely diagnosed with Lyme disease. It's not just someone who's bored and depressed and has chronic fatigue and blames it on Lyme disease or goes shopping for a prognosis, dangerous habit among consumers. They want to get something, so they keep shopping until someone's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, you have, you have Lyme disease. That's a bad habit. But the point being, so far, 100%, I've had a positive response to, key, to ketosis. So why, is it, why doesn't everyone just go on this diet? Like when you go in the grocery yeah. store, you know, there's the saying, you know, just shop on the edges because everything else is bread in the middle. Mm -hmm. Like, is it the grocery store's fault? Is it the kind of bread industry's fault? No, I think, I think that people are, to be quite honest, misinformed 
and generally lazy. <laughs> to follow the it's ke- hard diet, yeah, to, follow. Yeah, to, yeah, to follow the ketogenic diet requires a level of discipline that is not required for, say, the slow carb diet. So, if you're trying to lose weight, I would not recommend the ketogenic diet. I think it's 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 too binary. If you get the slow carb diet seventy percent right, and you're coming from a, a relatively standard American diet, you will just do fine. Your blood markers will improve. I'm not a doctor. I don't play one on the internet, folks. But generally, blood, I do. Play yeah. One. <laughs> okay. So your your biomarkers will improve. You'll lose fat. You'll feel great. If you do the ketogenic diet, seventy percent, you're actually probably making yourself worse because you'll be eating a tremendous amount of fat, but you'll also be consuming too much carbohydrate. So your your blood work will look like a train wreck. Mm-hmm. Generally speaking, you have to go all the way, and to go all the way, that means no juice. No milk, no condiments, no ketchup, nothing that has uh, any any degree of of significant carbohydrates. People are like, "Oh, I'll just have avocados; it's all fat." No, you won't. One one avocado could have twelve grams of carbohydrate. Boom, you're out of ketosis. Mm-hmm. No, sir, you can't do it. I didn't know that. Yeah, so it's it's. I'm it's, screwed. I I eat a lot of avo- avocados, <laughs> so no keto for you. Uh, but the the effect was so impressive that I dove back in and have spent time with, say, Dominic D'Agostino, one of the published researchers who's in this book. Great chapter in this book. Yes. Very important chapter. So, so impressive. Uh, just for people who don't know who Dom is. So Dom is very well respected, very well published in peer-reviewed journals, and also just happens to be able to deadlift 500 pounds for 10 repetitions after a seven-day fast. <laughs> He's a beast. Uh, Peter Tia, Dr. Peter Tia, MD, uh, that's, that's redundant, but I want to make clear that in this case, he's not a PhD in philosophy or something. This is an MD. Uh, I've also doing, done a tremendous amount of research. One of the smartest humans I know uh, was in ketosis continually for, I want to say, two and a half, three years, even when he was, he was doing, say, 25-mile swims and things like that. Uh, also, he's the one who talked about the four things that are going to kill you with 70% likelihood if you're old, older than 40 or 80% perhaps. Uh, the longest chapters in this book, I would say, are dedicated to, well, a few things. Uh, you have Dom D'Agostino, who covers ketosis in great detail, and fasting. That's a long one, by necessity. The chapters on psychedelics, those two chapters are exceptionally long because it's, it's, it's a subject that I think deserves a lot more study and attention. And you know, by the way, I wasn't going to mention those chapters because I think for, I think there's a lot of um, stigma and because of just decades of, you know, politics about around the '60s and the LSD for movements sure. out of that and movements about just say no on drugs. People don't really understand that microdosing of LSD is a completely different experience than what you know people were doing back in the '60s and and now might have some therapeutic effects. But you talk so much about it in there. I think it's a, an area worthy of exploration, which you make that point and give the experiences. Uh, I just didn't know how much really to cover in, in the podcast about it. It's up to you. Oh, no, I would just say that. Uh, Do you have any around here right now? Can we microdose some <laughs> LSD right now? I would try oh, it. Oh, I put it. I put it into the air conditioning unit. So we've been we've been inhaling psilocybin since we came in. No, uh, I, I would just say I'll keep it short because we don't we don't have to really go deep there. But I think some of the most important work that I've done personally has involved a judicious supervised use of different psychedelics that have legitimate 
therapeutic and medical applications. And, and, and let's just say with the microdosing of LSD, what is a microdose versus what people would normally take at a party? So, so I personally don't use LSD, uh, but I, I'm at this point, for instance, and I will answer that. But uh, I am helping to fund studies at, say, Johns Hopkins uh, Medical School, looking at how psilocybin can be used in non-microdoses, so in moderate to high doses, uh, for as an intervention for treatment-resistant depression, depression that is not responded to any other conventional treatment or drug. Uh, and looking at applications to, say, PTSD or different types of addiction, Ibogaine and Iboga as applied to opiate addiction is just incredible. Nothing even approaches it. Nothing is even close. It is magnitudes of order more effective for, uh, in conjunction with other therapies, for opiate addiction than anything the world has ever seen. But to your point, a microdose, <laughs> okay, so we can, we can we definitely get into different dosing schedules. Psychedelics, I should say, first of all, terrible name because there's so much baggage associated with it. So sometimes I would refer right. to them as entheogens. We could call them different things, but for the sake of simplicity, psychedelics. Psychedelics, just to define that for people, this is going to be, there are a million ways to do it and no one's going to be pleased by any one version, but think of psychedelics as a compound that allows you to leave your ego behind so that you can look at past experiences, current pain and so on, objectively that you may have even forgotten and process in some productive way. Uh, there's a lot more to it, uh, but let's just say that. As and, and by the way, there's a lot of people in here talk, like Sam Harris, who you've mentioned before, he basically mentions it would be a shame for his if he has a child that doesn't at least experience a little bit. Yeah, at least have that experience once in their life. And I agree with that. Um, I mean, these are in the case of not LSD, but in the case of say psilocybin, which is found in what people call ma magic mushrooms or mescaline. Uh, there are many others. These have been used for millennia, many people would say, millennia in traditions around the world for many different purposes. But to come back to your question, a microdose, psychedelics behave at different doses almost like different drugs. You could take the same compound, let's just say LSD, and at 10 or 15 micrograms, which would be considered a microdose, you may not even notice any type of visual hallucination or auditory hallucination whatsoever. Everything seems more or less the same, perhaps with a slightly improved resolution. Be like changing your television, upgrading mm -hmm. your television, but the picture remains the same. There's no distortion. That can be used for certain things. Then you might have, say, 50 micrograms, which would be considered a museum dose or a concert dose, and that has its own effects. Slightly higher still, you could actually use LSD for concrete problem solving, including the hard sciences and engineering, designing a new circuit board, bringing people in who are tackling uh, specific math problems that they've not been able to address for months or years that they're personally vested in. Then you go up to, if we if we jack it even further and go up to, let's just say, and I'm not an LSD specialist, so I'm, I'm, I'm going by memory here. We go to 300 micrograms, perhaps. Then you're getting into the the what we would call transcendental range where you you may experience a completely different perception of reality or perceive that you are in a different reality. Once you get to that level or higher in particular, you need supervision. 
and you can go through some extremely difficult and painful, but at the end of the day, I believe productive and useful experiences mm-hmm. as long as you're in a safe environment with supervision. And I should point out just to, to maybe state the obvious that the, the, I think the, the physical risks of many of these compounds are politically exaggerated. If you look at it scientifically, uh, it's, it's very hard. Like the LD50, meaning the dose that will kill 50% of the population for LSD is virtually unknown. I mean, it's limitless. It's, 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 it's very- As opposed to alcohol or nicotine as, as, or as anything. As opposed to alcohol, nicotine, or cocaine, for instance. However, the legal risks and side effects of, of owning, using, and certainly distributing, if you're stupid enough to do that, do not do that. The, the legal pen, penalties of having these compounds, which are scheduled in the same class, last I checked, as heroin, can be severe. You could you could go to jail for a very long time and come out a uh, a, a very very different person in a very different place. So, uh, people need to take that very seriously. Well, and also, in just in addition to reading your uh, chapter or two on on this topic, you could just Google. There's a ton of scientific research being done right now on you know the therapeutic effects of these different Absolutely. drugs, and it's, and it's relatively new. Uh, it's past five years that I've seen this research. It is, and it's, and, and there will be a lot more coming. That's I'm effectively I. Let's call it retired from early stage tech investing two years ago, and I've been redirecting a lot of my energy and finances to this area of research specifically, looking at very highly esteemed, respectable institutions like Johns Hopkins, NYU, UCSF, I mean, top, top, top researchers. And the Hefter Institute does some very interesting work. Uh, MAPS. Also does some very interesting work. What's Maps? Maps, I believe, is the multi multidisciplinary association for psychedelic studies. Something along those lines. Very much involved in trying to uh, legitimize and legalize in different ways some of these compounds. Uh, I've done personally more work with, or had more involvement with the Hefter Institute, which is run primarily by MDs and PhDs. So, so uh, the one last area I want to get to in the healthy section. Are, are you? By the way, are you okay on time and everything? I'm great. Okay, good. Because uh, there's so much to to cover. Yeah. But uh, one thing that comes up over and over again, not only among kind of the peak performance athletes uh, of which you interview many, but also just in general among like healthy people, is two types of exercises. One is pull ups, and the other is deadlifts. Mm-hmm. So, so a why do these? Um, I, and I, now I'm I'm seeking for myself information. So what should I do, and how many times a week should I do them? <laughs> and okay. I'm not like ever going to be an athlete. I just yeah. want to. I'm getting older, and I just want to be in ma- maintenance shape. Sure. Forever. Mm-hmm. So the, I think that there are a few reasons. The the pull up and the deadlift both work the pull-ups to a lesser extent on your posterior chain. So the muscles on the back of your body from the base of your skull down to your Achilles tendon. And those are not show muscles. So in a conventional I know, gym- I know, that's why like when I see on the gym machine, it's, it's, I don't even care about them that much. <laughs> well, this is, this, is, this, is, this is a normal response. So a lot of people focus on the biceps and the pecs and the abs and things that look good, but ultimately are incomplete. 
at best, if that is the entirety of your workout. So for the posterior chain, uh, kettlebell swing, the two-handed kettlebell swing I would put in the same category, are incredibly effective for training the entire back of your body. And they're very time efficient. So Jamie Foxx, obsessed with pull-ups. General Stanley McChrystal, obsessed with pull-ups. He was the one I was thinking of specifically. Yeah, yeah like I was surprised how serious he was about pull-ups. Oh yeah, and they're they're portable. You can do pull-ups just about anywhere. You can certainly do them in your home with a rig that'll cost fifty dollars. You could get on Amazon or anywhere else. So it's it's a very portable way of training, which is a convenience factor. But what I would recommend to you is probably starting with kettlebell swings, actually. So I would get two kettlebells. I would get one that is 35 pounds and I would get one that is 52 pounds. And I would begin doing two-handed kettlebell swings. And if you search just kettlebell swing and Tim Ferriss, there's some videos that walk people through this. Uh, And you start, you could start with the lighter weight and you'll work your way up to say an uninterrupted set of 50 repetitions and do that three times a week. But in the beginning, you'll have lighter weight and you might do 15 repetitions, get winded, stop for a second. And I forget though who you're talking to where they basically said, get the maximum weight possible so you don't do a lot of repetitions. You do like five repetitions. That's Pavel Tsatsoulin who actually popularized kettlebells in the US. So if, if you're training for pure strength, absolutely fewer than five repetitions with long rest periods. So we're, 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 we're taking a slightly different tack here and we're working on strength endurance, among other things. And I'm also telling you now from my personal experience, just from seeing thousands of trainees attempt different versions of this, I would prefer for you to start with the simple good program that you stick with versus the perfect program that you find overwhelming. Hmm. So I always focus when I'm encouraging any type of behavioral change or a new habit what is the most stripped down, simplest version that I can provide this person so they, so they see positive feedback quickly and they don't feel overwhelmed? Uh, because otherwise, what happens all the time is you'll have someone design an extremely intricate, fantastic program, but that is cognitively, uh, schedule-wise, completely overwhelming. It needs to become your number one priority. And for most busy people, that is doomed to fail. But the five repetition sounds better to me than like, oh, go on 20 different weight machines. and. Well, you're not going to go on 20 different weight machines. My, what I would be suggesting to you to get started, and this is, again, making some assumptions. My assumption yeah. is you're starting from a place of, I'm kind of paying attention to my diet, but I'm not really exercising. Right. If you have a whole separate program in place, then it's a different conversation. But let's just assume you're like, you know what, I'm kind of, st- kind of watching my diet. I'm not morbidly obese. I want to add in exercise. And we're talking about the posterior chain and the long-term benefit of, of training that. Kettlebell swings, doing a total of 50 repetitions in a session three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And then we would add weight to that. And part of the reason that I recommend that first is you're developing a foundation of, of basic strength and awareness of the mechanics of proper hinging at the hip as opposed to squatting. So you're kind of sitting back uh, as opposed to squatting down and having your knees travel over your, over your toes. This is important because when you then go to the much heavier weights for five repetitions or left or less, excuse me, if you have if you make a technical error, you can really hurt yourself. And if you start with the kettlebell, I think you are learning both technically 
you're learning technically and developing strength endurance that can help act as insurance before you get to really heavy weights. Once you have done, say, the three times a week, over time, as you get stronger, I would decrease the frequency, mm-hmm. in fact, because you have to you have to allow for limited recovery ability. So we probably cut you down to say Monday, Friday at some point when you're using the heavier kettlebell. You can get in fantastic shape just doing that. You're done. Mm. Period. End of story. You Really, and I've done this for months at a time myself, one kettlebell, that's it. Swings. Monday and Friday? Monday and Friday. Or to begin, in the very beginning, I'd do Monday, Wednesday, Friday. At that point, if you wanted to add in, say, deadlifts, uh, or pull-ups. Doing a pull-up properly is surprisingly technically challenging. Uh, Pavel Tatsulin actually has some some great material on this, uh, but to do a strict non-kipping pull-up is surprisingly difficult. So I would then actually move you to a deadlift, and I would have you probably do either what's called a sumo deadlift or a hex bar deadlift. Those are two variations that tend to be a little bit safer for the back. And uh, there's a gent that I talk about in The 4-Hour Body, I also talk about him in Tools of Titans in the Pavel chapter, is Barry Ross. So Barry Ross has trained multiple world champions in track and field. And he has a deadlift-based protocol. And he has them do two, generally, and it's changed over time, but when we last spoke, two to three repetitions, very heavy weight, and you're only lifting it off the ground up to your knees, and then you drop it. And this minimizes the risk of damaging your hamstring or your back. So that it's a safety precaution, but you're doing these very heavy weights in that range of movement, and then you take long rests. How heavy, like versus your own body weight? Uh, it depends on, on how strong you are. I mean, I, when I was at my strongest uh, from that weakest range of movement at the bottom, I was doing 475 pounds mm-hmm. for repetition at a weight of probably 175. Uh, there are people out there who can lift four or five times their body weight. I mean, there are, there are human ants out there. Mm. But uh, you would test that. And in the case of the deadlift, I would, ha- I would find a competitive power lifter who can show you to proper technique before you get into this program. And then you would be doing this Barry Ross protocol, which is extremely minimalist. But the strength gains that it produced for me were beyond anything I'd ever seen before in my life. I mean, I'm not a competitive powerlifter. There are many people out there stronger than I am. But from a decade plus of wrestling, I have a pretty strong back and legs. And I added, I want to say, the exact numbers in the four-hour body, but 80 to somewhere between 80 and 120 pounds to my max deadlift in, I want to say, eight weeks or 12 weeks. It was unbelievable how strong I got. And just to describe, because uh, Pavel describes this, but there's benefits to strength. Just there's a direct correlation between strength and... Strength is considered, and Bruce Lee also said this, the, the, the mother quality that allows all other qualities. Mm. And hence, the name of Pavel's company is Strong First. Mm. So before you try to get super flexible, before you try to get super fast, before you try to get super fill in the blank, get strong. And you can do that without getting bulky. That, that was the other piece of the Barry Ross protocol that was so wild to me. Is so you're just to, to finish it off though, you're doing two to three reps, two to three sets, and you're taking at least five minutes in between sets. So your actual lifting time, weight in hands, is really short. And I added when I even though I I put whatever it was, 80 to 120 pounds. And I know that's a wide range, but on my, my max deadlift for, for repetitions in this case, I gained fewer than 10 pounds total. 
And what other benefits did you see? Did you were you sleeping better? Were you everything's better? Mm-hmm. Everything's better. And I, I know that sounds like a throwaway answer, but when you have a strong back and uh, a strong your spinal erectors are strong along the spine. You have stronger traps. You have stronger neck, uh, and you train your grip. There is a lot of transfer to other activities and to other parts of your body that you wouldn't expect. Uh, and sleep, strength, speed. Keep in mind, he's training sprinters, and it's a it's a very much deadlift focused weightlifting protocol. He's used it successfully for uh, speed skaters, sprint cyclists. It's 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 a fascinating program. So I'm planning on getting back on that mm. program in the next few weeks. Uh, but I'm combining that, and I have to figure out the right way to do it. This is the tricky part. It's 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 challenging to combine different training protocols, which is why I'd suggest just do the kettlebells. Just do the kettlebells for a few months. You can get you can turn into an extremely fit beast of a human being just doing that. You don't need anything else. Well, I, and I do want to be a beast of a human being. So. <laughs> Next time on the James Altucher Show. We're looking at some quotes. One of my favorites that I use a lot on the internet <laughs> when I'm engaged. The World Wide Web? The World Wide Triple Web. W. The, exactly. Is uh, from May West. And the quote is, those who are offended easily should be offended more often. Well, um, which brings us to Kevin Kelly, <laughs> <laughs> who actually is never offended by anything. <laughs> no. Um, and he says, this is so fascinating, this quote. Productivity is for, because everyone's obsessed with productivity. And, the, and But he says, productivity is for robots. What humans are going to be really good at is asking questions, being creative, and experiences. The question that I found myself asking of myself was, where am I not replaceable or the least replaceable? Maybe I don't have an incredible, unique opportunity to change the world, but if I did, somewhere in my life, somewhere in front of me, what would it be? Hey, thanks for listening. Listen, I have a big favor to ask you, and it will only take 30 seconds or less, and it would mean a huge amount to me. If you like this podcast, please let me know. Please let the team I work with know. Please let my guests know. And you can do this easily by subscribing to the podcast. It's probably the biggest favor you could do for me right now, and it's really simple. Just go to iTunes, search for The James Altucher Show, and click subscribe. Again, it will only take you 30 seconds or less. And if you subscribe now, it will really help me out a lot. Thanks again. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.